Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. And uh, it's just the two of us again, but we're, I'm getting used to it. How about you? <laughs> I am. I am sweating in our studio by myself. Like, you're nervous? No, I'm hot because <laughs> the studio is hot. And, you know, I know we've been buzz marketing enough, but I, the internet uh, is only working in our studio for some reason. Oh, my. And uh, I ate some of that spicy beef ramen in uh-huh. this hot room. <laughs> yeah, that's didn't, a dangerous combo. <laughs> didn't think to open the door, so I'm just like sitting here pouring sweat out everywhere. Well, here's the thing. You could go totally dong out like Spartacus if you wanted to because you're the only one there. People have been talking about dong out lately just, on the movie crush page. Yeah, well, it's a pretty hilarious term. But just please put down like some newspaper or something on the chair before you sit okay. on it bare-bottomed. Okay? Oh, and by the way, speaking of uh, movie crush, you, I think this is going to come out the day after your – Movie Crush, Mini Crush appearance oh, cool. uh, next week. Yeah, I'm excited about it, man. I'm, I'm a little nervous. So, no, it's going to be great. People are going to love it. So if you don't listen to the show, maybe listen to this one episode and then forget about the show again if you want. <laughs> <laughs> or stick around, maybe boost the numbers a tad. But it was a lot of fun, and I think uh, I think people would w- want to hear your appearance as well. Uh, I really appreciated you having me on. It was it was a lot of fun. You're it a was consummate fun. professional at hosting. Hey, we turns out we know what we're doing here, don't we? <laughs> don't jinx us. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, I think we should front load this episode with a little bit of a COA. Um, if you are uh, a pretty hardline anti-vaxxer uh, or if you um, believe in things like plandemic – or that Bill Gates created the coronavirus for <laughs> right. population control. Sure. You may not want to listen to this because we're going to bring you hard and lean facts. Lean and mean, depending yeah. on your point of view. I think that's yeah. a good that's a good COA. I think that maybe you got rid of two percent of the hate mail we're gonna get. So thank you for that. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I think uh <laughs> it just bears saying just why why, why uh, rile yourself all up? Just uh, listen, listen to your echo chamber podcast that <laughs> validate what you think. Maybe or 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 ideally, or, calm down and just hear us out and see what you think. Well, that's always a you know that's always an option. You know, so we're not even talking necessarily just about vaccines or anti-vaccines. Um, it's almost like a a side thing to this whole thing, but it's definitely still um, very much intertwined with it. Um, we're yeah, talking you, about you, herd you immunity. Or you can't not talk about vaccines if you're going to talk about <laughs> herd immunity. Right. No, because with with herd immunity, especially in the 21st century, there's basically two ways of getting there. And one of them is a, a robust vaccination program. That's right. And if you don't know what herd immunity is, then um, then you're probably just fine. You've been living under a rock and you're not near any other humans or the Internet. <laughs> you're still protected, though. That's right. Herd immunity, though, is the principle uh, sort of in its simplest form of safety in numbers. Mm-hmm. And if you have a lot of people or enough people, because there's actual math involved to figuring that out, it's not just a guess, 
if you have enough people that are immune to a virus, uh, and it can be, like you said, through vaccination or through having lived through the disease and then having antibodies, right. then the population is uh, protected from that disease, even if they aren't immune. That's, that's the idea that so many, a certain threshold of people are immune that even people that choose not to vaccinate can hop on that wagon. Right. Um, and it's not even like you hop on the wagon, like you are on the wagon just by well, virtue of being alive in the society or culture, yeah. right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Um, there's a really easy way of understanding it that uh, Molly Edmonds used in um, the How Stuff Works episode on herd immunity that if you pretend you're at a bowling alley and each person has their own lane, and this is basically that bowling alley lane is like their their bubble that they live in, their work, their home, and everything, and they don't encounter anybody else. Just that. It's kind of like Wally, but with bowling. Right. If the first person on lane one comes down with, say, the flu, um, he can very easily pass it on to the woman in lane two. Uh, if she's not immune to the flu, she will contract it and pass it on to the person in lane three and so on and so forth, and it'll just keep going. And eventually, people will develop antibodies. Some of those people will die. Most will survive. Uh, and the flu will have a hard time getting through that population a second time around. But if the woman in lane two is already immunized to that flu strain, say through mm -hmm. like a vaccine or something, then... It's not going to transmit from the first guy in lane one to her, or it's certainly not going to transmit beyond her. So she's protected everybody in lanes three through ten just by virtue of having been immune to that flu virus. It stopped with her. And that's the point of her uh, immunity. That's the whole that's the, the basis of the whole thing. Yeah, and if we want to stick with bowling parlance, then that means that that lady is bowling strikes. She's throwing strikes. Strikes. Not even 7-10 splits, which she could if she wanted to. That's how immune <laughs> she is. Yeah, p the perfect game. <laughs> right. I, I remember that dumb joke when I was little about, uh, you know, you learn the stupidest jokes when you're a kid. Sure. Because they have to be so dumb a kid can understand them, I think. I think so, maybe. But it, about the, the guy who bowled a 301, and you're like, you can't bowl a 301. Well, you can't bowl a 300 and lose. Mm, man. I, I know. That's how bad it was, and that's how much it stuck with me. Did you get that from highlights? <laughs> I don't know where I got that. It was pretty bad. <laughs> Sounds like a playground joke. I think so. But I think you get beat up in the playground even with that one. Yeah, so <laughs> let's talk about herd immunity some more. Uh, we talked about the two ways, uh, natural exposure and vaccinations. Yeah. And if we're going back pre-vaccination and talking about human history, um, the herd there was herd immunity, and it was I guess the way to describe it is herd immunity the hard way. Um, yeah. People being exposed to the virus or the bacteria, developing that immune response, and enough you know they reached that tipping point where enough people have it to where everyone's immune, but they lost a lot of people along the way. Yeah, that's part of the problem is is. If you look at it on an individual level, if you are exposed to a virus or a bacterium and it runs rampant and infects you and you come down with uh, an illness from it, you there's basically two outcomes. You can put, in a, put up an immune response and win or you can lose and die. But if you survive and win, you've become immunized and 
That's just the natural course of viruses or bacteria when they encounter humans, at least contagious ones, infectious ones, right? Um, and, and we didn't have any recourse other than that. So it's actually kind of good that we do have this natural immune response to— Yeah, sure. I mean, we just wouldn't be around anymore if we didn't have it. It's part and parcel with human survival or any biological survival is to be able to mount an immune response— build antibodies so that if you do encounter this thing again, you don't have to go through the the illness all over again for the most part. But, like, we didn't have any other tools besides that until the 1940s when we were able to mass manufacture vaccines. And now, all of a sudden, we could, say, create herd immunity without anybody ever having to get sick or almost anybody um, just through vaccination uh, vaccination programs. Yeah. And here's the deal, too. Uh, in, you know, pre-vaccination, they could build up an immunity, lose a lot of people on the way. And mm-hmm. it wasn't like, all right, now we're fully set forever. Right. Uh, sometimes there would be a, like a, another swell of exposure, whether or not it's uh, like a bunch of people moving into the country or a bunch of people being born. But basically, non-immune people kind of flooding the system and then that percentage point that we're going to talk about dips below that number, and then you kind of you don't have to restart the whole process, but it kind of that hamster wheel gets going again until that herd immunity is then reached again. Yeah, that's I think that's um, what's called an endemic disease, where it's still there, just hanging in the background, but for the most part, people are immune to it. And then when you have like an influx of births or an influx of immigrants, it can flare up again. But then those people get. Um, kind of taken into the immunized herd and become part of the immunized herd as well. And and the deal is, is that natural herd immunity is all we had until we developed kind of the ability to make massive quantities of vaccines. Right. I think in the starting in the 1940s. Yeah. I mean, there were a few researchers along the way who really uh, brought this along. There was a couple of people named, a couple of dudes named W.W.C. Topley mm-hmm. and G.S. Wilson, who actually c- coined the term um, herd immunity. But in 1933, there was an uh, epidemiologist named A.W. Heydrich who studied measles uh, between 1900 and 1931. And he's the one that actually kind of quantified this and said, I've done the math. If 68% of kids 15 or younger were immune to measles, then we're not going to have a big outbreak. And he wrote a very famous paper about it. And that's where the the term really took off. Yeah. And so... Um Herd immunity is basically an epidemiological concept. Uh, it gets um, sometimes I think in the in the popular press, especially, it gets kind of leaned on as if it's like a natural universal law or something like that. It's right. basically an observation, but one that has, seems to be consistently held up by the success of vaccination programs that we've created to generate artificial herd herd immunity. And that's the point. That's the point of vaccine programs is to say, okay, for for basically all of human history, all we had was that natural herd immunity, whether we liked it or not. But now that we have vaccines, we can create vaccine programs where if we vaccinate enough people, we can force this herd immunity without almost anybody getting sick. Like you might have a slight reaction to the vaccine for a small number of people, usually somewhere around like, say, 
3 to 10%, the vaccine's not going to protect you. But if enough people out there get this vaccine, they're going to be vaccinated, immunized against the disease without ever having gotten it. And if enough people are vaccinated, we will have this herd immunity without having to undergo some disastrous epidemic that kills off some ungodly number of people and makes an even larger number of people sick. That's the basis of vaccines in the vaccination program. And I mean, countless tens of millions of lives have been saved just from the fact that they have existed since the 1940s. Yeah, I mean, that's when they came into mass production. In 1796 is when we first started as humans to kind of understand this concept. There was uh, a man named Edward Jenner who inoculated a, a little kid, a little boy against smallpox. And this is kind of gross sounding, but he infected him with the pus from a blister of cow, uh, cowpox, which is less deadly. And he was like, hey, I think I'm onto something here. And in uh, 200 and, or I guess 140 something years, <laughs> we're really going to be on the ball with this stuff. Right. And there were other like vaccines along the way, but, um, and I think they were all just kind of small batch. You know, like artisan vaccines uh, yeah. <laughs> that were created, um, but the, uh, the the it was like the '40s where this on this mass industrial scale that that they were produced, and and only under those circumstances can you actually get to herd immunity for like a, a large population, like a state or a nation or a world, basically. Yeah, and you know, I think we've said this. We'll kind of keep beating this drum and repeating this, but the whole concept is to protect people. Uh, who haven't even been vaccinated because right. sometimes you're too young to get vaccinated. Sometimes you have a condition as a child where you literally can't be vaccinated or maybe you're elderly and uh, you had been vaccinated. But, you know, what they always talk about, especially with uh, COVID-19 and, and the flu, the elderly population is at risk because they are way more likely to develop complications uh, like uh, pneumonia is a big one for what's going around now. But as far as even something like chickenpox, uh, encephalitis or hepatitis, mm -hmm. and we don't really know the deal with children and adults and their immune systems and exactly how they work and what the differences are. But it looks like kids are either more uh, robust and against something like chickenpox. Like when you have it as a kid, it's usually not such a big deal. When you have it as an adult, it is a big deal because right. it may be your adult system just going into overdrive saying – you should have had this when you were six. <laughs> right. What is wrong with you? Didn't you have any friends? Did You, you had chicken pox probably, didn't you? I did. I did. Yeah, um, same here. Yeah. My sister always had – she had a pox scar like on her temple that I always admired. So I made sure to like pick one on my <laughs> temple. <laughs> I don't think Emily got it for some reason I'm, that is in my brain. Oh, my. Is she – does she have the vaccine against it? I think so. Okay, because since the mid-90s, they came out with a vaccine against varicella, which is the virus that causes chicken pox, and now it's like you don't have to get it as a kid any, anymore. I'm pretty sure somebody I know didn't get it and did get the vaccine, and I'm pretty sure it's my wife. Right. So <laughs> I should you know, know her this. pretty well. So, um, so with chicken pox, that's a good example of how, like, you know, if you have it when you're a kid, it's, I mean, it's still life-threatening. You can get all those same things like encephalitis or pneumonia, but you're just way likelier to get it as an adult. Same thing with the flu. Like, the flu can be very deadly depending on how old you are. Um, right. I think something like 
it says 90% of flu-related deaths and 50 to 70% of hospitalizations for the flu are for people over age 65. I mean, so for the same exact strain of a bug that, like, yeah. you know, has a kid at home watching Price is Right for one day, maybe two, um, it, it lands a, a, an older person over age 65 in the hospital on the brink of death. You know, it's just different. And so because that there is that difference, it makes sense to immunize the young, inoculate the young to protect the, the elderly. And let's not forget, even if you couldn't care less about the elderly, you hate the elderly because some old man <laughs> yelled at you once when you threw a football in his yard and you've hated all old people ever since then. Do you hate babies? Because... There Some are, people do. <laughs> there are babies who are too young to be inoculated. And then there's also those people, like you said, who don't have um, healthy enough immune systems to get a vaccine. And so they rely on the everybody else, the herd, to be vaccinated to provide this immunity for them. So there right. are really good reasons to be vaccinated in addition to you yourself being immunized against these things. Yeah, and, you know, the, these things work better in a homogenous population. And every time I see that word, I want to say homogeneous that, for some reason. That's the British way of saying it. Do they say it that way? They probably do. Probably, just to be contrarian <laughs> or contrarian. <laughs> Uh, they work better in homogenous populations, which there are not a lot of those uh, still these days, um, thanks to, you know, people integrating with one another. Mm-hmm. So when they do these calculations that we're about to talk about, they take all of that into account, uh, races, uh, ethnicities, mixed races, stuff like that. And so, you know, we've been talking about the the modeling and the math involved. It can get complicated, but it's really kind of simple at its base form, don't you think? Yes, especially if you're a mathematical genius and a statistical <laughs> whiz, which, which I am is, not. Oh, okay. <laughs> but in the broad strokes, yeah, you, you can make a pretty good case that it's understandable for sure. The, it's, it's all based on the reproduction number in relation to the, the size of the population, basically. Yeah, and that reproduction number, uh, they in the, in the biz, it's pronounced r not. It's R with a, I guess that's a zero, huh? Yeah. I'd but rather say R0 any day of the R0. week. R0? Yeah. r not though, uh, for an infection, is a number of people... Uh, expected to contract that illness after coming into contact with an infected person under the right conditions Mm -hmm. that they can contract it. So uh, a less confusing way of saying that is the R-naught number is the expected number of people that a contagious person is going to infect. Right. So if you understand this about a disease, if you know, um, for example, with the mumps, it's extremely contagious, which means that it has a high R naught because the average person walking around infected with the mumps and contagious with the mumps is going to get something between 10 and 12 other people infected with the mumps, and then they themselves will be contagious. So that means that the mumps has a relatively high R naught or reproduction number. So if you understand that about the mumps, you can calculate how many people in a population have to be immunized against the mumps to to prevent it from transmitting within that population. And like we said, there's a lot more math to it than that. But ultimately, for the mumps in today's modern heterogeneous uh, populations. Is that the right way of saying it? I don't know. Nobody says heterogeneous, do they? That sounds <laughs> oh. way too close to erotic. 
It sounds like something I would say. So um, uh, in today's modern society, we'll just put it like that. Yes. You need to have about 95% of any given population immunized against mumps to reach what's called the herd immunity threshold. That herd immunity threshold is basically what I just said. It's the percentage of the population that has to be immunized for herd immunity to kick in to cover everybody else. Yeah, and I know that everyone's going, what about COVID? What about COVID? What about COVID? Just wait. Um, oh, you want to not even say yet? You want to wait? Okay, all right, that's fine. That's fine. Well, just... well, how about this? Let's take a break. Oh, my God. This is just, I can't. And then <laughs> right after the break, we'll uh, we'll dive into this stuff later. But right after the break, we'll give you sort of what they're thinking as of today when we record right after this. Learning stuff with Joshua and All right. So that was an unfair cliffhanger. Uh, and keep in mind, like we kind of learned and we knew this was going to happen with our COVID-19 podcast. It was out of date like days later. Sure. And this will be out of date because there's just so much we don't know yet. And we're learning so much every day and every week. But I've seen the range from 60 to 80 percent as what they think the immunity threshold needs to be for uh, to have a pretty successful herd immunity. Uh, right. That's the current thinking that I saw as well, that they think the reproduction number is somewhere between two and three. I think I saw 2.8 is like the most widely touted for COVID-19, for Corona. Yeah, th- no, thankfully. I mean, can you imagine if it was like mumps level? <sighs> right. Yeah, no, that's especially with the fact that there's such a thing as asymptomatic carriers who can walk around infecting yeah. people. If that was that much more contagious, it would be... Yeah, it'd be pretty rotten. Like, it, as bad as it is, it could conceivably be worse, epidemiologically speaking. Yeah, and here's where we should also point out that just, like, we're talking about herd immunity, but if we reach herd immunity, that doesn't mean, like, everything is solved. Um, if we come up with a vaccine, which we will, uh, vaccines aren't 100% effective against every single human. So <laughs> things can still happen. Um, right. And then sometimes you get a, an immunization that's effective for a short time, for a few years maybe. Yeah, there's a an outbreak of diphtheria in Russia in 1994. I mean, like tens of thousands of people fell ill with diphtheria, and they were almost all adults. And they went back and figured out the reason why this happened was because um, those adults hadn't been given a booster shot for their diphtheria um, inoculation. And oh, so, the, so their, their immune response, their antibodies that they'd built up when they were children, having been given this diphtheria vaccine, uh, had waned. And they, it waned enough that diphtheria was able to kind of take over and, and cause this outbreak. And so when you look at it like that, that's almost a really good analogy uh, to herd immunity. It's like over time, uh, the, 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 that threshold can be can be can decline so that the the virus or the bacteria can get in. Same thing on the individual level if you don't get a booster shot, if you need it. For some vaccines, you don't need it. I think measles, mumps, and rubella are all considered um, to confer lifetime immunity if it does yeah. work on you. And I think those are 97% effective. So for 97 out of 100 people, when you get 
an MMR vaccine as a kid, you don't need any kind of booster and you're going to be immune to it for life. Right, which is great. It is great. Um, That's the point of vaccines. <laughs> yeah, and this is where we need to dip our toe into something um, that's called vaccine uh, hesitancy. That's that's what the official name for it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a situation we have. Um, I'm not sure about other countries because I didn't do a lot of research into that. But here in the United States, and especially certain parts of the United States, there are vaccine uh, vaccine exemptions in place granted for uh, philosophical purposes, religious purposes, personal reasons. Um, it is important to point out here that personal reasons get all the press. Mm-hmm. Um, like when you see articles about anti-vaxxers, it's people that choose not to get their child uh, vaccinated for certain reasons. Right. But the the largest percentage of people who don't get vaccinated, very sadly, um, it has to do with uh, finances and, and poverty. Right. I mean, like it's it's... If you want to vaccinate your kid, but you can't because you don't have the money or they're not available to you, I think kids in rural areas have much lower vaccine rates than kids in urban areas. Um, That is really sad. And I think that's something that because it's such a public health success, um, it should be something that's much more widely available to anybody who wants it. Yeah, here's some numbers on that. Uh, there was a study by the CDC in 2017 uh, that noted that the percentage of children without any vaccines had risen to about 1.3%. And these are kids that were born in the year uh, 2015. And then they compared that with the 2001 survey. They found it was just 0.3% of children uh, between the ages of 19 to 35 months. So Basically, they looked at the numbers and they found that the children who are uninsured or who live in rural areas, like you said, or maybe had Medicaid insurance, uh, 17.2% of the unvaccinated kids were uninsured compared to 2.8% of overall kids. Right. That's a big diff. It is a a huge diff for sure. Um, And then there are, like you said, there's parents who forego vaccinations uh, for personal reasons or religious reasons um, or philosophical reasons. Although I don't understand what the difference is between philosophical and personal. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, and I'd be interested to find that out. But the, um, the, the uh, people who don't vaccinate their kids for whatever reason, uh, who make a conscious decision not to, are um, tend to be viewed as freeloaders. And that's not just us, like, throwing shade. That's, like, the term that, that is used is freeloaders. Yeah. They're freeloading on the larger herd to— um, prevent from being exposed to this disease or these diseases or viruses or bacteria um, because they're depending on other people to immunize their kids through vaccinations instead. That's right. Uh, and there's another weird phenomenon that's happened here in the U.S. that uh, where a vaccine program is so successful yeah. that generations will go by without any of this disease, so you're not even familiar with it. So it's sort of absurd in this way that it's been flipped. But one of the reasons sometimes you will hear uh, to, to not vaccinate is like, well, that old disease, that hasn't, you know, the, we haven't seen that in 200 years. Right. And I'm, I'm going to put that vaccine in my kid. And it's like, well, yeah, because the vaccine worked. <laughs> right. It's a victim of its own success, the vac- yeah. vaccination program. is, And I think from what I can tell, that's how um, public health officials typically explain uh, anti-vaccine 
or declines in vaccine rates among people who consciously choose not to, that basically they just haven't seen how bad a disease is. Like you haven't seen what polio can do to somebody because you were born into a world where for all intents and purposes, polio just didn't exist, right? Right. And so you lose that incentive that somebody who is aware of what polio can do Um, the incentive that that person has to vaccinate their kid. And then when you couple that with um, questions about a vaccine or fears that there are some um, negative side effects from a vaccine, that disincentive or that lack of incentive becomes a disincentive to get that. And so there's this ironic circle that develops where those vaccination rates go down. We Mm -hmm. dip below the herd immunity level. There's an outbreak of that disease And then the very people who led to that decline in vaccination levels point to that outbreak as evidence that vaccines Vaccines don't work or herd immunity doesn't work. And it's It's it's, hard to wrap your head around. It is very hard to wrap your head around, especially if you are fully on board the vaccine and um, herd immunity through vaccine trains. It can be fairly galling, I believe. Yeah, and there's a couple of things, a couple of big challenges uh, to herd immunity and whether or not it can work today. And one of them is that we can get on an airplane with our family and we can fly great, great distances and get places really fast Mm -hmm. and then come home again really fast. And this happened in 2008 uh, with the uh, outbreak in San Diego. There was a family that went to Switzerland. Um, This little boy picked up the uh, virus of the measles while he was in Switzerland. Such a bad little boy. He was, <laughs> no, he wasn't He was bad. so naughty. He he was unvaccinated. He got sick when he got home. He infected 11 other people, uh, including one who was an infant that was too young to be vaccinated. Yeah, they just, got, just if you were like ambivalent about this. Right. <laughs> they threw that, that little detail in. <laughs> yeah. And at first they were like, what is going on here with this weird outbreak? Because we have 95% uh, a minimum threshold here in San Diego, 95% against the measles for herd immunity. And it, in 2000, it was declared eliminated basically all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so they started to kind of poke around this case and they said, all right, San Diego's doing great, but this kid actually goes to a school and his localized social group is about 17% of them uh, at the school don't vaccinate. So while the city was doing fine, his little localized community had a pretty high percentage of uh, unvaccinated kids, and so that allowed it to spread. Right. It allowed it to spread. Those kids became immunized. They became ill, but then they became immunized to the measles naturally from being exposed to it and having fallen ill. Um, But the big problem is, in addition to the fact that it just kind of ravaged this uh, hyper-local social group, there are other pockets within the herd that probably bear a striking resemblance to that social group. And if those social groups come in contact with the other social group that's been infected, you can have an epidemic within the larger immunized herd, which you don't want. You want those people to be protected. But the the decline in vaccine rates and the fact that we can travel, like you were saying, so easily, not only does it mean that like a virus or a bacteria can travel just as fast on on board a human who's on a plane, um, it also means that there's constant fluctuations to the percentage that herd immunity threshold because of the influx and outflux of people who are vaccinated or not vaccinated. 
Right. And this is why those vaccina- uh, vaccination rates being high is really important um, because it's it's protecting everybody. Yes, you want a, a large public buy-in to the concept of vaccinations. And when there is not a large public buy-in, then your herd immunity is under threat. And everybody who is bought in is is um, at risk because, again, you might say, well, who cares? If, you, if you've inoculated your kids, if they're immunized against measles, what do you care if somebody else's kid isn't because they have personal reasons against it? Um, your kid's fine. They're inoculated. Don't forget that with the measles vaccine, I think it's like 97% effective in that that means that if there's 100, 100 kids in a room and one of them has full-on contagious measles, which again is very contagious, it's like the mumps in its contagiousness, three of those kids who have been vaccinated are possibly going to get the measles from that kid, even though they right. were vaccinated because their body just didn't form the, the right immune response or enough of an immune response that they'd be protected if they were exposed to that kid. So it is a problem for even people who have been vaccinated against diseases to have a decline in herd immunity. And then also don't forget the people who don't have uh, an immune system that can allow for them to be inoculated or vaccinated. Right. And the elderly who are just by virtue of being older, more susceptible to a really hard bout with whatever disease it is they're being exposed to. Yeah, I've been running up against that that frustrating sort of circular um, non-logic about COVID-19. I'm, I'm a member of a Facebook page of a oh boy. an area in more rural Georgia. That's all I'll say. <laughs> you could have just stopped at a Facebook page. <laughs> And there's been a lot of that same sort of um, circular logic of, well, all these models are turning out to be wrong. They way overstated everything because look at the numbers falling. It's like that's because we (laughs) social distance and because we did all this stuff. Right. It worked. And like it worked. That's how modeling works. Like the initial numbers were really high because that was just sort of the starting point. That was the input data was here we are at the beginning and this can happen this way. And Americans got together, by and large, at first at least, and did the right thing. And so those numbers went way down, and it worked. And then they are using that as proof of like, well, see, the modeling's just off. They're just guessing. Yeah, I saw that coming like a, a mile away. Oh, of course. Uh, just a yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Everything's political, huh? Yeah, and I'm just you know I've tried to, I've tried to avoid it, but I have also commented at times like. Modeling is not guessing. It is there's there's real research and math that goes into it, and and that math changes based on the input data. Like in a month, there will probably be different numbers, and it's not because they're just guessing and they're wrong. Right, right, yeah. It's um, I, I think it's that distrust and expertise that has really kind of wrecked things quite a bit. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about what's going on right now and how this applies to our situation today with the uh, 2020 novel coronavirus, COVID-19, call it whatever you want. Well, wait a minute. I think we should institute a tradition in this episode where every time we're about to talk about COVID, we make it a cliffhanger and take a break. Oh, okay. All right. We'll take a break and we'll talk about all that right after this. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should Oh, 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 oh,
All right, Chuck, thanks for playing along with me. We're going to have like 50 ad breaks in here because we're going to stop every time right before we talk about COVID. <laughs> yeah, so what we're dealing with now uh, in the most recent days and a couple of weeks is a new sort of divide has emerged. Um, everyone got together at first, it seemed like, and there was a lot of unity for five minutes. And then... <laughs> A dividing line has now formed mm-hmm. um, in the United States and kind of in the world, depending on what your view is on how to best handle this. And the two sort of routes are, uh, and we'll talk about specific example examples of uh, different countries and what they're doing. But there's elimination, and then there's herd immunity and vaccinations. And not by not pooping. You don't mean pooping by elimination. <laughs> no, I mean getting rid of it of the of the virus, but not altogether. by pooping. No, not by pooping. But we're talking about a few countries in particular. Everyone's talking about Sweden right now because Sweden, uh, compared to the rest of the Nordic countries, the rest of Europe, and most of the rest of the world, uh, was one country that was like, you know what? We are going to say if you feel sick, stay at home. Yeah. If you're at risk, maybe stay at home. Try and uh, keep a safe distance from people. But bars are open. Restaurants are open. Um, no big concerts or anything like that. And let's try and get that herd immunity going instead of shutting everything down. Right. So they're they're pursuing a mixture of like social distancing guidelines, but nothing that's being super enforced aside from, you know, those gatherings, like you said. But ultimately, they're pursuing basically a, a strategy of herd immunity while trying their best to keep the curve flattened. Right. And uh, I think we're pushing this one out sooner. So this will just be out like four or five days from now. Mm-hmm. And all of these numbers are going to be changing. But the jury's kind of still out on whether or not that's working in Sweden. Um, as of a couple of days ago, they have a far higher infection rate than their Nordic neighbors. Right. Um, not, I mean, it's a little lower than some other countries to the south. So... We just don't really know yet because the jury is still out. We don't know what our our percentage needs to be right now. Like I said, it could be as high as 80 percent. Right. So we just don't know. As these numbers come in over the next, like, month or two, it's going to be really telling. Um, I think kind of either way you slice it, it's not right to say, all right, well, look at Sweden. And if if, if it works there— that means it's going to work everywhere because that's just not the case. No, and Sweden has like consistently beat this drum. They're like, look, we're not even sure this is going to work for us, but we're willing to try it. But we're far likelier to be successful at something like this because our um, population maybe is a little more collectivist than some other populations. Um, They're healthier than Americans. They are healthier. They have a, a, big deal. a much stronger um, and more responsive healthcare system. They have a more homogenous population, don't forget, which may mean that they could reach herd immunity more quickly than some other countries that have less homogenous populations. Sweden is more homogenous? <laughs> they also, get this, they also, they don't have like huge mega grocery stores where there's a 1,000 or 1,500 people milling around all at the same time. They have like smaller shops and markets that serve like a particular like corner in a neighborhood and they have them like right. every few corners so there's not tons of people in the market at every given at any given moment there's just a lot of differences between swedish culture and say american culture that's that 
is giving the Swedes the confidence to try this. But even still, there are people in Sweden that are like, this is indefensibly reckless. We can't yeah. do this. We can't try this. This is stupid. And like you said, there are some early signs that it is not going so well because compared to um, Norway, Denmark, and Finland, their death rate adjusted for um, uh, population size is between three and six times the death rate of those nations. And those nations tried elimination. Yeah, and I saw that the... Um, I don't. I don't think it was like the... I think it might have been the head of whatever their CDC is said that they were surprised by the death toll. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, and not in a way like they seem like really good people, so it's not like, oh, we never thought of this, but I think they were surprised it, it is as high as it's been. Right. Um, and so Sweden's not the only one trying this. India's trying it as well. And they're doing something very similar to Sweden. They have a lot of social distancing guidelines, but are also kind of hoping for natural herd immunity to kick in. Um, and they don't have much of a choice. They're, right. They have like 0.55 hospital beds. So a little over half of a hospital bed per 1,000 people in the country and 44,000 ventilators. Um but the, both Sweden and India are taking a strategy of saying if you're older, if you're elderly, if you are in this high-risk group for suffering complications from COVID-19, you stay home too. And we'll let the younger population go out and get sick because they can handle it better and may be less of a strain on the healthcare system. Um, and they'll be the immunized herd for the rest of the population. I don't know if those strategies are going to work or not. Um, but that's kind of like the mentality behind them. Yeah, and there are other countries. I think in England they uh, originally were going to kind of follow that model, and then everyone said, no way, bollocks to that. Mm -hmm. And so they have um, got some stricter measures going. Belarus is the one uh, place that's really the, – the president there who's been in office I think since 1994 has called the stricter responses around the world mass psychosis – and he's basically like, I mean, they're having a full-on military parade this weekend. Oh, my. And saying, screw all this. Uh, and Belarus has one of Europe's highest per capita infection rates. Yeah, he's like, have any of you even seen the coronavirus yourself? <laughs> I haven't. Yeah. Jeez, there was a guy on one of this that same Facebook page that said, I don't even know a single person who's had it, LOL. <laughs> and I was like, well, you're you're lucky, sir. You should be thankful for that. And he's like, mm, it's not luck. Could be something else, dot, dot, dot. And Did I was just like, I'm stepping out of this immediately. <laughs> Man, I don't know if I, I say hats off to you for being on that Facebook group or just <laughs> deeply pity you for being on that Facebook group. Well, I sort of have to be because I have to keep up with some things. Uh, this is a another part of Georgia where I own a little little tract of land. Oh, gotcha. So you need to so make sure like to... nobody's squatting on it? <laughs> yeah, I'm the only squatter. It's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so this whole herd immunity thing, there's herd immunity itself is, it has been controversial uh, since before the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Those same people who question vaccines also question the concept of reaching herd immunity through vaccinations. There's like suspicion that um, you're artificially suppressing 
the vaccine and you're actually weakening the immune system and that it's going to set us up for this horrible problem down the road. None of that bears scrutiny under logic. Um, But today, herd immunity has kind of reached this controversial inflection point for a totally different reason, and that the the people who are saying, well, we're going to opt to try for herd immunity now rather than later so that we can get our economy going again, what they're talking about is herd immunity without a vaccine. Right. Big, big, big difference. Huge difference, because what they're talking about is basically reverting back to the pre-vaccine thing where it was just like, okay, I hope we get to herd immunity sooner than later and a lot of people are going to die along the way. And that's one of the big flaws of this argument of going for herd immunity right now, which is there's going to be a lot of people who die as a result before we get to herd immunity because we don't have a vaccine. We're going to have to reach herd immunity through just exposure to this virus just like in the old-timey days. Yeah, I was about to say, as, as if we were living in ancient times and just sort of crossing our fingers. Right. So Not good. Lots of death is, is a big flaw against it. Um, if, if the reproduction number for SARS-CoV-2 is three, <laughs> that's confusing. <laughs> but if, it has, if, if COVID-19 has a reproduction number of um, three, let's say— um, and the, that means the herd immunity threshold is about 70%. That's about the yeah. high end that anybody's saying is 70% should stop the virus from spreading anymore, right? So if that's the case, then that means 70% of a population would be sick. And uh, I think a, a half to 1% of a fatality rate would mean that of the larger population, 035 to 0.7% of the population will die. So if you know that, then you can take just the populations of some of these countries that are trying this and say, well, before you reach herd immunity, um, Sweden, out of your population of 10.25 million people, about 36,000 to 72,000 are going to die along the way. Statistically speaking, that's the number that you can bet on. Yeah, uh, between 1.25 and about 2.5 million in the U.S. and if you're going to look at the the world population, we're talking numbers higher than the Spanish flu, 27 to about 54 million people dead. Mm-hmm. And that's if, you know, we're not saying like, that's going to happen. We're saying that's if the whole world took the approach of just, all right, let's just see how we do, you know? <laughs> right. And, and I mean, like this, that's, we're a virgin population, humanity, not just the U.S., not just Canada, not just the U.K., not just Sweden. The world is a virgin population to this virus because it's a novel coronavirus. We've yeah. never, no one on earth has ever been exposed to this particular virus before. So there isn't any pre built in immunity like there would be if it makes another round a year from now, right? So it just burns viruses and bacteria burn their way through populations like that. So you can imagine it would spread. Uh, pretty effectively. And if the fatality rate really is a half to 1%, those numbers could be pretty real depending on what what measures we take to mitigate those, like you were saying. So death, that's a big, big problem. Um, and also along the way, we would be doing the opposite of flattening the curve by just letting people go out and getting sick to get things over with. Yeah, I mean, we we worked so hard to flatten the curve and it worked in most of the... Uh, most of the United States, mm-hmm. except, you know, these 
weird outbreaks in in smaller towns that didn't have enough beds and ventilators, and that's all been really, really sad to see happen. But by and large, we did the right thing for a while, and it flattened the curve pretty well. But this would fatten that curve right back up, uh, and we'd be in that same, like, in a worse situation than we were going in. Right. So um, that's another big one. And then also, Chuck, reinfection is another huge flaw in this. We We don't don't know if SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, how fast it's mutating. If it's like other coronaviruses or other flu viruses, it probably has a lot of what's called antigenic drift, where it mutates really rapidly and creates new strains that the antibodies that have built up this immune defense against one variety are useless to fight this new variety, right? Yeah. Some diseases don't do that. Like polio, the reason our polio vaccine has been so successful is because it doesn't mutate very much. It doesn't cause, it doesn't create new strains. But with coronaviruses, they tend to do that a lot. So there's a real chance for reinfection. So this herd immunity will just be like this ongoing thing until we can come up with a viable vaccine that can that can protect us from basically any mutated variety of this coronavirus. That's right. And antigenic drift. Do I need to say it? No, you don't. Great. <laughs> trip, great trip hop. <laughs> Oh yeah, Chuck. I think you yeah, just it's nailed like a trip hop band for sure. That that muted trumpet thing that they got going on. <laughs> What's that thing called on the trumpet that they make that sound with? Oh yeah, the uh, the the plunger, th- uh-huh. uh, the yeah. plunger head, the the muffler, the the thing. I don't know. Yeah, you're on the trolley. <laughs> so uh, the other thing that we need to consider, and that is the other sort of way that you can go about this is elimination, elimination that we were talking about. (laughs) Not pooping. Not pooping. And that is the opposite tactic, and that's what most of the world has done, including the U.S., which is self-quarantining, isolating, trying to contain the virus, uh, closing borders, masks, gloves, all that stuff. Um, We have flattened the curve for the most part. Uh, Other countries have come close to elimination. Uh, New Zealand is getting a lot of press because they, and you know, they got a lot of, again, you can't say like, well, the same thing could happen here in the U.S. Because New Zealand is a very isolated mm-hmm. place and it's a smaller population and they have super smart elected officials and smart people who <laughs> listen to those elected officials. Oh, man, we're just going to get so much mail for that one. No, man. Someone come at me. New Zealand's prime minister is amazing. She's She's like one of the best. Yeah, I remember when we were there, um, we got a cab ride, you, me, and I did to the airport. And this this guy, I think he was an immigrant from Sri Lanka, and he just could not stop boasting about how great the New Zealand government was, yeah. about how taken care of their population was, how like how much of a sense of community the whole country had, and it was just really refreshing to experience. Yeah, it is. Uh, maybe we should move there. Anyway, so the thing about <laughs> New Zealand, yeah, I'm sure there's some people listening, like, yeah, why don't you move there if you love it so much? <laughs> Get out. And there's there's also Kiwis that are going, come on over. We'd love to have you. Sure. And then there's also probably some that are like, please don't. <laughs> We've had enough of you two. So, but wh- why it worked there, though, was because, like I said, they have – you have to have everyone on board. And it seemed like most everyone on board uh, or got on board in New Zealand. And that's just not happened here. So, yeah. And, and I mean, it really has worked for New Zealand, but they've taken serious – restrictions like you you can't fly 
if you want to domestically. They shut down their ports. If you want to fly to New Zealand, TS for you. You're not going to get anywhere near the country. But in addition to that, if you're a New Zealand citizen, you can't fly from one place to another if you want to, just for the heck of it, right? There's So they've really instituted some draconian measures, but it seems to have worked. Like there was a report that came out two days ago on May 4th that says that the models originally used to project how many cases New Zealand was going to have, said that they were going to get something like a 1,000 cases a day if they did nothing, like no lockdown measures. Yeah. All they've had since March is 1,487 cases. Not a 1,000 a day, 1,487 cases total. And they've only had 20 deaths. So it seems like elimination can work. And for that reason, a lot of people are, a lot of countries have said, this is what we're going to try. And elimination just amounts to hiding out from the virus until a vaccine can be developed. The problem is there are serious flaws to that too, depending on what kind of what kind of government and culture that you have. But even without that, depending on that, it requires that everybody act basically perfectly and yeah. avoid everybody else and Give up your job, give up your economy, and wait until somebody comes up with a vaccine. And that can be a really pricey, costly measure. Yeah. Which is why yeah. a lot of people are like, this, this, we got to find some other way. Yeah. And they've looked at, um, there are like ways you can look at the countries and decide whether or not people are going to comply or not. Um, there was uh, some cultural data. There was a company called uh, Hofstede Insights. And they look at things like individualism of a population, basically like whether or not people are going to all go along or if people are like, heck no, man, I want my freedoms. I'm an individual. I'm an American. And you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> right. And you might not be surprised to learn that in Sweden, uh, they have a rank of 71 out of 100 as uh, on individualism. Uh, the U.S. scores 91 out of 100. So basically – 91 out of 100 would be uh, difficult to maintain, you know, these kind of uh, restrictions for too long. I mean, if you look at it like that, it's remarkable how it's remarkable and heartening how much people have given up individual liberties for the greater good in this yeah. pandemic in the United States then. Like, I hadn't looked at it that way. I just kind of saw like 91 and thought, okay, you know, that's. That's that's a it's a high score. There's a lot of individualism in the United States. We got an individual streak like nobody's business, right? Yeah. But if you look <laughs> at it almost like it's a it's a percentage of the population that will listen in in situations like this, then it really does kind of go to show you how how much of a sacrifice people have made. And not just Americans. I don't want to just say it like that. Like if you're in a collectivist society, you're still sacrificing for the greater good. It's just possibly a little more culturally ingrained in you that this is the thing to do. But e- either way, the idea of people people sacrificing for others is, is uh, it's heartening. The problem is, is people can only sacrifice for so long until yeah. you have just massive economic drawbacks. And, and that's the thing. So if you follow the forced herd immunity, natural herd immunity strategy toward COVID-19, you will it will result in a lot of deaths. If you follow the uh, elimination strategy, it results in a tremendous amount of economic hardship. And it's easy to say, Chuck, like, 
well, lives lost tops economic hardship any day of the week. And ultimately, yes, it does. But it's you really should not um, uh, understate the the toll in human misery of economic hardships and how bad this has gotten for some people and how quickly. Yeah, and the other thing I'll say too is uh, one of the arguments I've heard is that you know there are going to be so many deaths from people who are uh, who are depressed because they can't go out and uh, people dying by suicide and stuff like that, which, you know, I don't want to minimize that because that that for sure has an impact on people. Mm -hmm. But I saw a tweet from a guy that was talking about, can we just stop pretending that our former world of like working 50 hours a week and commuting in a stressful environment and hectic crowds and uh, mass consumerism and pollution and everything else was like a mental health utopia. Right, yeah. So it's, you know, you got to kind of look at the big picture and not just pick and choose what you're going to highlight because it fits your narrative, you know? Yeah, I think one of the, the, like, the few good outcomes so far of this has been like a huge downshift in that um, manic productivity that drives most Americans, you know? Yeah, and, you know, here's the thing is we don't know. Everything is so new. We're not going to sit here and pretend like, there is only one right way. Like we don't know. So there's so much that we don't know about this is we don't know the exact right path forward yet as right. a population. And the medical community doesn't know the exact right path forward. We're all trying to figure this out in real time and build the road as we're driving on it or whatever that expression is. It's close. And, you know, I, I have my money on uh, staying at home, slowing this thing down and elimination other people might feel a different way, but it seems like that way is working better. Yeah, it is. But again, if you, it, it's still early and the data is still coming in. There was a report this week of 100 New York hospitals. They found that 66% of new cases were among people who had stayed at home and mostly followed the yeah. elimination strategy. So th this one guy, this doctor who wrote an article that I read, Dr. Stephen Phillips, he said, look, man, like, in addition to all the stuff that we need to be doing to handle this pandemic, let's also create like a really robust data sharing um, yes. arrangement so that we can look back a year or a few years from now and study this and say, oh, actually, these countries followed elimination mixed with these social distancing guidelines or they followed herd uh, immunity pursuit. Um, and they actually came out on top so that we will know the next time which one actually does work taking everything into account, the cost in lives, the economic cost, the cost in personal liberty, and find the best way forward. And it right. probably won't be a panacea where everything works, like one thing works for every country, yeah. but we'll have a pretty good model, hopefully, that can be adjusted to suit the individual country that's adopting it. Hopefully. That's if we can get past all of the arguing over whether this is even real or not. Yeah. And uh, I know it's hard right now, but I think that the most dangerous thing right now is to have the mindset of, well, you know what? Uh, I'm pretty cagey and the weather's nice. And I don't know anyone personally who's gotten it, so I'm just sort of going to ease back into normality here. Right. Uh, I think that's that's when the second wave comes and things get worse, and it's tough. Uh, and everyone is antsy and cagey, uh, myself included. You know, I find myself wanting to do things. Um, 
and it's tough on on kids especially but i think it's more important now than ever to to keep up what's what we're doing yeah we haven't just magically wished the pandemic away it didn't work no and lovely weather um you know take your walks get outside do it safely Mm -hmm. but that it is not a reason to be like well that's old news now. We can just go back to normal. <laughs> right, right. I saw a post to, to button it up. I'm sorry we keep going back back and forth on this, but I saw a post that said um, easing of uh, lockdown doesn't mean that the pandemic's gone away. It means that they have a hospital bed for you now. Right, exactly. You got anything else? I got nothing else, man. All right. Well, that's it for herd immunity. Hopefully you guys learned something. I definitely did from researching all this. And we hope everyone out there is staying safe and sane and uh, hanging in there. That's right. Uh, Since I said hanging in there, it's time, Chuck, for Listener Mail. I'm going to call this uh, Thanks from England and a little shout out. Uh, Hey, guys. Wanted to say thank you. Uh, Thank you for your ongoing efforts with Stuff You Should Know. It's been a welcome distraction at work. I, along with so many, feel like we know you guys so well with Stuff You Should Know and Chuck's Movie Crush and Josh's Into the World podcast. Hope your families remain safe. And from my son Dexter and I, we wish you all the best for yourselves and the future of the podcast. Sorry to ramble on, which, by the way, Ben, that was not rambling on. No, that was (laughs) concise and beautiful. But you're from England, so you're very kind. Uh, Sorry to ramble on, but I was wondering if you would be kind enough to shout out all the UK NHS staff that are helping us over here. Uh, I have friends and family that work for the NHS services, and this is the only way I know how to say thank you. So for sure, Ben, uh, thank you to not only them, but uh, to medical providers all over the world who are working hard, risking their own lives, um, often with um, equipment that's being reused when it shouldn't be, and uh, not going to wade into those waters, but Uh, You don't have all that you need to do your job right now, and and that's terrible, and we should not be in this position, but we are. So thank you. Uh, He also says, P.S. Torquay. (laughs) (laughs) We heard from a bunch of people on this. Uh, You mentioned the other week, and I think the Agatha Christie uh, segment, we would pronounce it tour, as in tour bus, in key, Torquay. It's always fun to hear how everyone pronounces these bloody, silly towns over here. (laughs) Kind regards. That is from Ben Cleaver. In Harrogate, England. Harrogate. (laughs) Ben, that was such a good email that we are now friends. That's right. Thank you for that. That was much needed, man. Um, Thanks a lot for that. And we will very happily shout out the entire NHS and especially all of the people who are out there on the front lines working to save people's lives against COVID-19 or anything that happens to have befallen them. That's right. Um, thanks again, Ben. And if you want to be like Ben and get in touch with us, whether you want to tell us to stop being so political or you want to tell us that you think we're great, it doesn't matter. We want to hear from you either way. Uh, you can email us by sending one to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.